Okay, thank you, and thanks everybody for, for coming today. Um, we're going to continue on a little bit with some of the materials that we didn't finish last time on cognitive behavioral therapy. Also, uh, last time uh, on Monday, some people were experiencing some, some difficulties with what they were feeling about their own experiences of trauma. So we have put some resources, some self-help resources written in Farsi uh, on, uh, now are available through Tavana. So um, please check those out. Please check out those readings. Some of the other readings are really intended for medical professionals or mental health professionals and are probably going to be less useful for you, but the self-help materials may help you. Also, we will be posting and talking about some specific relaxation exercises as this course goes forward. So we would be posting more self-help materials on the website, but for now, please check out the ones that are up there. Okay, so we're going to continue on with, uh, talking a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy. So again, this is the uh, this is uh, uh, there's there's several components to this, and so we're going to go through we're going to summarize each one of them and then go through each one with a little bit more detail. So the first component of cognitive behavioral uh, counseling, the first component, is psychoeducation. Psychoeducation, and what this means is that the counselor helps educate the person uh, who has uh, a problem with traumatic stress about the nature of their symptoms and how the symptoms might be linked to negative feelings or to, or to certain reactions in their life so that they understand the connection and how the traumatic stress is working in their brains. The second component is teaching uh, relaxation or stress management techniques. So for example, techniques for breathing or techniques for helping a person fall asleep one of the things about traumatic stress, especially if a person was tortured, is that oftentimes it causes sleep problems. So uh, teaching relaxation techniques in order for a person, when they recognize the physical symptoms of what they're feeling, that they can, they've got some tools to respond to those. And for relaxation and stress management, when we talk about regulating emotions, we don't mean denying emotions, but we mean figuring out ways to to moderate them, to make them, to, to, to control one's emotions in, in a healthy way. Another component of, of cognitive behavioral counseling is what they call cognitive restructuring. This is probably going to be a little bit difficult to translate, but cognitive restru restructuring means um, identifying unhealthy patterns of thought and learning a response to oneself. In other words, to, to have a logical reason for refuting those. I'll give an example in just a second. So an example might be, if a woman was the victim of, uh, of a sexual assault, for example, she may feel that she's dirty or somehow polluted. And this is an unhealthy thought because, in fact, she's not polluted. In fact, she did nothing wrong. She was the victim of this crime, and there's nothing dirty or, or wrong about her. But she may have this feeling. So identifying this feeling and being able to say to herself, no, this is not true, I'm not polluted or dirty in some way, is, 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 is a, an aspect of, of cognitive restructuring. Okay, so now we're going to go back to the first bullet point from the last one. We're just going to talk now about psychoeducation. So what psychoeducation is, for example, the first thing is to talk about the normal responses to trauma. So, for example, everybody that experiences some sort of trauma, severe trauma like this, is likely to have the physical symptoms we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And those are normal responses. But when they persist over a very, very long time, they become a problem for the person, and they, they become no longer a useful response. 
like a fight or flight response, but a response that causes great difficulty in the person's life. Okay, so we talked a couple of weeks ago about the normal responses to trauma, how people may have um, fear and people may continue to have physiological symptoms like a racing heartbeat or, or headaches or lack of ability to sleep. These are all normal responses to trauma. So when a person really understands that their racing heartbeat and their um, lack of sleep and these other problems are related to an imbalance of, uh, an imbalance in the way that the body is regulating stress, it allows them to, it allow, this awareness, this ability to know this, allows them to step back from themselves for a minute and say, okay, this is a normal reaction to something abnormal and it's something that I can control. Okay, so then once a person knows about their symptoms and the causes of their symptoms and why this is happening to their body, then, then once they recognize when these symptoms are occurring, then they can use techniques to calm themselves down and to relax. And so, for example, relaxation techniques might be paying very close attention to breathing, breathing in and out very slowly and very consciously, being aware of one's breath and breathing with one's whole chest, just breathing carefully and slowly and gradually doing breathing exercises, which we will talk about and which we will provide uh, some guidance to you on how to do those. Also, another example of a relaxation technique might be we all have different ways of helping us go to sleep when we're nervous or upset or we're having difficulty. Somebody who's been tortured or has been traumatized often has a lot of sleep problems. So we all have these techniques. So maybe the counselor will work, will work with the person to refine and uh, improve and really practice some of these techniques. The one example might be what's called a body scan, where you feel, for example, the tips of your toes you're, maybe you're trying to go to sleep, and so you start by thinking about or feeling the tips of your toes, and then the ball of your foot, and then your ankle, and then gradually work your way through your whole body up to your head over about 10 minutes. Just concentrate on the feeling of the skin, uh, and so that you're not thinking about uh, anything bad or negative, and so that you're not, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, you know, the, none of the consequences of trauma are, are you're thinking about. You're just going over, feeling each part of your body. Uh, mentally uh, so that you, to help you go to sleep. This is called a body scan, and for some people this works. Now, of course, everybody's different, so one of the goals of the counselor is to work with a person that's suffering from traumatic stress to find specific things that work for that person, and also to make a plan, because it's easier when you're working with somebody else to make a plan. So, for example, if exercise helps you relax, but maybe you're not very good about exercising at certain times, maybe working with a counselor to develop a plan a plan of some sort to put different um, activities in your life that, that, that cause you to relax. Um, that sometimes is very helpful. And sometimes one of the purposes for the counselor is to help a person come up with this plan and to be able to stick with it. So now this, this term, cognitive restructuring, which again is one of these crazy terms that I don't know that there's a direct translation for. But that's learning the connection between um, thoughts and feelings and behaviors uh, uh, that causes one to have negative thoughts about oneself or just negative thoughts in general if one is suffering from depression or traumatic stress. So we use the example of a woman who is a victim of a sexual assault and feels dirty and how she can be trained to remind herself whenever she has these negative thoughts that it's really not true. She's not dirty. She's not polluted. Uh, and a counselor can help a person come up with techniques of that sort.
And I'll give one more example. Another example might be a person, maybe a man, has suffered some sort of trauma, and now he's a bit depressed. So he thinks negative thoughts about himself. He thinks, you know, I'm not bringing in enough, uh, enough money for my family, or I'm not being a good father or a good husband. Um, somehow he thinks something negative about himself, which isn't really helping the situation. It may be true that he's not working as much as he used to be, but, but the self-blame is, is, is a negative thought that's, that's not very helpful. So, for example, the counselor may help the person always respond when those negative thoughts occur, to always respond with another answer in their mind. So, for example, if the person thinks they're worthless, maybe they can learn to remind themselves that that's not really true, that they have value, and that they have value for their family. And then the counselor can also work with the person on some exercises to help them, for example, to be more affectionate to their children or something of this sort. Uh, but the idea is to have an answer for when these negative thoughts occur, and then to have a plan so the person can practice doing some things that counteract these negative thoughts. Now, the only way this works is that if it's done consistently and the person practices. So, for example, in the case of the woman who feels dirty or somehow polluted, every time she has one of these thoughts, even if it just pops into her head when she's cooking or doing something like that, she needs to confront the thought and remind herself that this is not true. Uh, and then also for any of the techniques, for example, maybe there's some exercises to help her get close to her family again, or maybe there's some exercises to help her relax. Every time she has one of these negative feelings or one of these ne negative physical feelings, like a racing heartbeat, she needs to stop and she needs to do the techniques and over and over and over again practice these things. So practice is very important. Okay, now maybe... You're not the person who's suffering directly, but maybe you're trying to work with somebody else on this. There's a few cautions that you should bear in mind. First off, there can always be obstacles to doing this. You need to be mindful of whatever might be preventing a person from following some sort of a plan that you work out with them. And the other thing is don't blame the person if they're not doing the exercises very well. So, for example, you're working with somebody and they say that it helps them to relax by doing exercise. And if they're not physically exercising, don't tell them that they're stupid or that they're not willing to change or blame them in any way because that, that, that never ends up working. Uh, rather, you should try to look for other ways around it. So if they're, if they're not doing some sort of exercise that they had agreed to do or that they were wanting to do, you need to try to think about some way to either break it down into smaller steps or some way to restructure the activity so it's easier for them. Okay. So we spent a little bit of time on this, um, but I think it's worthwhile because this cognitive behavioral therapy is really at the heart of what any counselor does, and it's also at the heart of whatever sort of self-help materials there are. So this, this was a little bit important, so I did spend more time on it, even if it seems a bit simple. So maybe we should open it up now for just some questions before we move on. Well, it is a difficult process, and, and one of the roles of a counselor is to help the person with this, to help the person sort of tame, you know, and control the impatience and, 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 and the agitation that one feels. I wish that it were possible for us to do some sort of counseling by video, but it's not possible. So I, I think that these, these techniques can work, but it's, it's important to either find a mental health professional that can work with you on that, or a friends or supportive family that can help you, help you apply some of these techniques over time. Um, it is, it's difficult. I, I freely admit it's very difficult.
also, for example, here among torture survivors, many of whom are from Africa or from other countries, sometimes uh, we do things like um, cooking groups, for example, where a number of different women from different countries get together and cook their foods and share it with each other. And sometimes activity groups like this are very helpful. It allows people to focus on some sort of activity outside of themselves in, in a social situation with others. So though, that can be helpful also. Let me just say one other thing about that, though, and that is that addictions and traumatic stress are pretty different in some ways. Addictions is caused by somebody having a, dis, a lack of regulation of the reward center in the brain, and traumatic stress is caused by some problem with regulation of the fear center of the brain. So they're, they're a little bit different, uh, and, and maybe in some significant ways. A person with post-traumatic stress disorder might be more agitated or nervous, but at the same time, a person with addictions might actually have a harder time leaving the addiction. Traumatic stress is in some ways a little bit easier to treat sometimes than addictions. Okay, well, first off, let me say this very clearly. If anybody has feelings of suicide, uh, anybody who's participating in this or any of your friends or anything else like this, get to a doctor because this is never, ever a good idea. Um, and frankly, also the suicide rate among persons with traumatic stress is not all that high, but it, it is a risk. So if anybody's feeling depression or danger, I, I want them to go to a doctor right away. It's really, really important. And there's nothing that we can do from this end through a, a webcam to really address that, but I just want to repeat that and stress it. The other thing is if any family member or a friend starts to talk about suicide or you think that they might be suicidal, create a safety plan. Make sure that the person has other people around them and assess whether they have, you know, it's sometimes people say they want to kill themselves and sometimes people actually have a plan. If you think that the person actually has a plan, it's really important for you to develop a plan also, to develop a plan to make sure the person isn't left alone and to develop a safety plan and to make sure that you're in communication with that person. This is really important. Okay. Today we're going to talk a little bit, and this is, well, this is, the, today some of the things we talk about are relevant to mental health providers or medical providers or attorneys. It's about your first meeting and conducting either screening or an assessment. So the main point here um, is that whether you're a lawyer or a psychologist or a medical doctor, you have to develop a sense of trust with the person. And the person, when they first come to you, they may either not talk at all about what happened to them. They may, you know, have a very flat affect or just or, or not be communicative, or they may be very agitated. It could go either way. So one has to, when you first meet with somebody, the important thing is to establish a sense of trust and to be very aware of their state of mind, whether, whether they're sort of shut down and very quiet or whether they're agitated and a little bit nervous. So, for example, if you're a doctor, the traumatic stress may not be the, it may be the real reason why the person is coming to see you, but that may not be the reason that they say. They may say, well, I have an upset stomach all the time, or I have heartburn, or I've got pains all over my body. So especially if you're a medical doctor, it's good to take a thorough history because what the person says is the problem may not be the problem that they think is really important. And they may not disclose it because they don't trust you at first. That's why building trust is so important. But just remember, the initial presenting problem may not be the problem that they really want to talk about. Now, there's two different sorts of, well, there can be a screening, which means a very brief 
um, to screen somebody to find out if certain traumatic events occurred. So this is brief, and it's just intended to get information. This is something that, for example, a human rights organization might do. Have you been tortured? If so, where and when? Uh, so th that's a screening. A screening is really very basic. And an assessment is really determining in depth how the trauma affects the person and what the problems are that the person is confronting in their life. Now, it's important if you're a human rights organization to stick to the screening and not do the assessment, because if you do a full assessment of somebody, then really you have some responsibilities to respond to some of their needs. So if you don't have access to services and you don't have any place that you can send a person, better not to really get into all the details of what happened. So oftentimes trauma goes underreported. It's not reported, and it's reported it's not reported for two reasons. First, many times medical professionals or lawyers may not ask about it specifically, and of course the person may not, uh, may not talk about it either. So we can then go on to the next slide also. Okay, so I think we're now on to the next slide. Um, okay. So the, we know about all these reasons here except for the second one and the last one on this slide. The second one might be, you know, if you're a victim of some really bad sort of trauma, you might be worried that nobody will really believe what happened to you. So as a provider, as a lawyer or as a doctor, you need to suspend your disbelief and listen to the story carefully and not reject it because the traumatic memory, even if it seems incredible, that may be the way the person remembers what happened, and that's significant. And the last point on this slide, all you guys know this, you know, males, men in general, don't tend to talk about their feelings, and they don't tend to talk about what happened to them. And, they, and when they're feeling bad, they tend to kind of isolate themselves. I don't know what it is about men that causes this, but I think all the men and women listening to this probably realizes, realize that to some extent, some combination of being male and a specific culture causes men not to talk very much about what's going on. Some other reasons for underreporting, or some other things that you might want to explore if you're a doctor or an attorney or a mental health professional and you're working with trauma survivors. One of the things is, is it might simply be difficult to remember. Um, and uh, for example, I'll give an example of that in just a second. An example of this, there was a woman lawyer from Congo, an attorney, and she was put into a cell with a person who had died. And they left her in that cell for a month while the body decomposed. She'd been tortured also before this. But this was so horrifying that she blacked out the complete month. She was not able to remember, and she was not able to put her memory into sequence. She was not able to say this happened at this point, and then this happened next, and then this happened next. So sometimes very bad traumatic incidents can really mess up a person's memory. And if you're a lawyer or you're taking testimony, this is something you have to be aware of because the order of the memories may not, may not be good. Also, they may feel like they can put the trauma behind them. That's the second to last bullet point. But in fact, really a healthier way to look at it is that you never really put the trauma behind you. You just kind of tame it and make it part of your, part of your history that doesn't overwhelm you and that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't cause unnecessary difficulty. But, but feeling like you can put it behind you completely is not very realistic. And so that's another reason why sometimes people don't talk. And, of course, children may not be able to really put into words what happened to them. So when you're screening children, this is also a concern. Um, next slide, please. So the, another thing that can cause a person to be less willing to talk about it, and unfortunately this might be the case in Iran, when other people aren't talking about the same issue, when people feel scared to talk about something, then that has a chilling effect throughout the society and people may be less willing to talk about it. 
The last two bullet points we've talked about before, we've talked about at length that traumatic stress is not the same as mental illness, but people may think that it is, and that may also cause them not to talk. So now a lawyer or a doctor may not recognize trauma for a couple of reasons. One important reason is that oftentimes people simply do not ask about this as part of a normal intake. However, I think it is important and valuable for a doctor, particularly a doctor, to talk about this directly. And of course, a lawyer will want to know what happened. Any lawyer that's working with a case of gender-based violence really should ask if there's, what the nature of the violence is. Also, sometimes people don't want to ask these questions because they feel like they'll make the person uncomfortable. And while that's true, it's okay to ask directly about traumatic history if you're in a professional relationship with the person that you're seeing. So if you're a doctor or a mental health professional or a lawyer, you can ask these questions directly. And even though it causes discomfort, it's better to ask them directly and respectfully than not to ask them at all. And also, obviously in Iranian culture, if there's a concern about sexual assault, it's still important to ask the questions, even if it's embarrassing or, or if you think the person's going to feel shame. But of course, it's better to have a woman ask the questions, especially in Iranian culture. And it's also, you must assure them confidentiality, that the information is not shared. And after that, we can change to the next slide. Another thing is, if you talk to somebody uh, and you just use the term sadama, you just use the term trauma, sometimes this is not enough, or sometimes this isn't direct enough to, to get the person to talk about it. If you suspect that the person was beaten up, then you can ask, did the police beat you? Or if somebody was, you think, uh, uh, if there was some other form of injury to them, you can ask using rather direct language. You have to be respectful, of course, but it's better to ask using direct language because sometimes talking around it by talking about trauma or some other minimizing word, might they might not respond to that. And also, this is really for the doctors out there, but sometimes symptoms of traumatic stress, one might think that there's something else. So for some example, if somebody's having a flashback, they may think, oh, they're hallucinating. Or if somebody's washing all the time because they feel dirty, they may say they have obsessive compulsive disorder. But so a doctor has to be really careful not to misdiagnose and has to take a history of trauma to make sure that they're not mistaking a symptom of traumatic stress for something else that's actually a mental illness. Okay, so back to traumatic screening. Usually it's only a couple of questions, uh, and as I said before, it has to be clear and explicit. It has to ask exactly what happened to you. Uh, now, don't interrogate, but be direct. The exception about being so direct is when it comes to sexual abuse, especially of children. So in those situations, if you suspect that, you might ask them about where they were touched and how they were touched, but not be quite so, so um, direct in how you ask the questions. And that's when it comes to children and sexual assault. It's better, to, uh, it's better to talk to them and just ask them where they were touched and how they were touched. Also with sexual assault, remember that it's not just rape. You know, other, there's other forms of sexual assault. There's different sorts of touching. And also even sex that's coerced, that somebody feels forced to do, even if, if it seems like it's voluntary, but they feel that they were forced. That's something to determine. Well, again, it depends. I mean, if, if the person's a mental health provider or a physician, then the information is significant. But now, I don't think that just a friend or anybody else should just automatically push for all this information. So these are questions to ask in a professional setting by a lawyer or by a physician 
or by a mental health professional. So I think in terms of personal relationships, like with a family member, you need to exercise a lot more caution and follow the other person's lead about whether they want to talk or not. And why this is important is suppose you're a doctor and you suspect that something happened to somebody when they're in jail, but they were, they're presenting to you with a lot of physical symptoms of things. Well, if you know actually what happened, then that helps you to screen for various things. You can screen for high blood pressure, for example, or you can screen for other sorts of problems that they might have, physical problems that are related to the events that they experienced. Also, if you're a doctor, maybe you can find a mental health professional to help the person. So, for example, if you're a doctor, this is why you want to ask these questions directly. One of the other things, if you're screening, you should ask about when the events occurred, and especially if you're working with anybody who's a victim of traumatic stress, you should ask about whether they feel that they're in danger currently because that's significant information. And if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a mental health professional, if they're feeling that they're in danger right now, then you probably have an ethical responsibility to try to help them develop a safety plan. So it's always okay to ask about safety. Okay, this slide is for if this is really for physicians or mental health professionals. We won't spend much time on this. But basically, you just need to take a full history of pre-existing medical problems, and if you're a mental health professional, you need to talk about family relations and family problems. And you want to pay attention to social and cultural factors. But again, this slide is really for those of you that are medical professionals or mental health professionals. The only other thing I'm going to say about assessment right now, and then we're going to skip ahead a little bit, is that with assessment, sometimes the person can be treated like they're an object, like they're a, a stone or a rock or a piece of meat or something and just talk to, and not like a subject, like they're an individual human being. And this is one of the difficulties, one of the inherent difficulties with doing an assessment or some sort of screening, because you're asking a lot of questions, and, uh, and if the person continues to provide services, it's important to switch out of this questioning mode and let the person respond more fully in, in, follow, in the follow-up uh, uh, um, meetings and uh, appointments. Okay. Well, I think that we're, what we're going to do, since we only have about 10 minutes left, is that we're going we're gonna to ask for some questions or discussion. And I may um, keep the discussion on gender-based violence uh, for the next session, to start the next session. We're a little bit behind, but not too far behind. But uh, I, I think uh, maybe I have a question for you. Does anybody out there, do any of you have to do these sorts of assessments as part of your job? Well, we have 10 minutes to go. If there's no questions, we can go on uh, for a couple more slides uh, until we get to the one that says traumatic transference. But if not, let me just see if anybody wants to talk about, does anybody here have to assess or screen victims of violence as part of their job? Now we're going to talk about um, something called transference. So when you are talking with a victim of trauma of some sort, um, that may affect your own feelings toward that person. So, for example, an, exa uh, an example of transference may be if you talk to somebody who's been traumatized or who's very depressed, you may feel some sort of anger at them. For example, they're not sticking with the treatment plan or they're not, um, they're not doing what you suggest or they're somehow um, you know, depressed and you think that they should just get over it. Um, those feelings that you might have towards somebody are normal, but that's called transference. And on the other side, the torture survivor may have some unrealistic expectations. The, the torture survivor may think that the mental health professional can fix the problems directly. Or the torture survivor may 
react very negatively to being questioned. Maybe the, the psychologist or the doctor is asking them questions and they don't feel like they're, they're like they want to be interrogated. And so they displace those feelings, those feelings of, of being angry about being questioned back on the, the doctor or the psychologist. That's also a form of transference. And this is normal, but the way to do it is to, the way to deal with this is to talk about it. So if the if the torture survivor or the survivor of trauma becomes angry at the therapist, it's it's good to stop and ask why, and just to talk about it a little bit. Not to blame anybody for it, but to talk about it a little bit, because sometimes they might be transferring their feelings onto the therapist, even though what they're really angry at is the police, for example. Another thing is, if you're a doctor or a psychologist or a lawyer, you may listen to the stories that the people are telling you, and it's no, it, it may make you really angry. I've heard a lot of stories from people seeking political asylum uh, or from people that I've worked with from different countries that survive torture in one way or another. And sometimes it's hard to listen to the stories without being really distracted, without getting really angry at some idiot, some horrible person that did this horrible thing to this other person. So if you're interviewing a victim of some sort of trauma caused by human cruelty and you start getting upset and you start getting distracted, Take a break and remember to refocus. Just take a break and refocus. But the effects of hearing these stories may make you feel traumatized as well. This is what's called secondary traumatization. Sometimes there's something kind of contagious about trauma. You know, if you are talking with somebody that's been really mistreated, particularly if it's an act of human cruelty, it can give you nightmares as well, or it can give you sleep disturbances. So you just have to be very, very aware of that. And then we'll go on to the next slide. So one thing is important, and that's to remember your role as a doctor or a psychologist or whatever profession you have, and to keep, you know, manage your own emotions. But the second thing that's most important is the, the last bullet point talks about caring for yourself. And the more you hear these really awful stories and these horrible acts of human cruelty, the more important it is to carve out time when you're not at work um, to do things that relax you and to give some meaning to your life, to sort of overcome the, the, the toxic nature, nature of these stories, the horrible nature of these stories. This is really important. So um, now uh, on Monday... Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about gender-based violence, violence against women and girls. We're not going to get into that too much today. I did put up an article for those of you that can read English uh, about female suicide by burning in Iran, which is kind of interesting. I'm going to see if I can find some resources in Farsi on this uh, to put up also. But uh, those of you who can read English, have a look at that article. And on Monday, we're going to talk more at length about gender-based violence, which is one of the most common forms of trauma in Iran. Well, it's a difficult question. One thing to remember is that children are very resilient. So um, they, if a child has other healthy adult relationships around, they usually can do okay, even if the parent has been traumatized. That's one issue. But then there's a few things that the, maybe the parents can, can watch out for also. So I'll let you translate that, and then I'll say the other thing. One of the difficulties sometimes, especially if the kids are teenagers and if the parents are not functioning very well because of traumatic stress, is that the teenage children may start taking on much more responsibility maybe earlier than they should for their family. 
this can be good or this can be bad, because sometimes the children can disrespect the parents or think that they're somehow weakened or somehow not able to do their job and, and start to lose respect for them. So this is a little bit of a concern, and sometimes this is the case with adolescents. Okay, uh, I, maybe there was another question, but I, I was going to give an example. For example, when I was in high school, a very good friend of mine, his mother had been captured by the Japanese in World War II when she was a young girl herself, and she was forced into prostitution uh, in World War II in Indonesia. And when she was older, she was very depressed and not really able to function. And her son had to really hold the family together. But at the same time, he became kind of wild. He participated in all sorts of very, very wild acts. He got somehow involved in drugs and alcohol a little bit. And there were other problems that she had with parenting them. And I think what kept him going well and what was important was that he had other uncles and aunts and other family members who were also adults in his life that could sort of counterbalance this and remind him and encourage him to continue to respect and support his mother. Another thing I would say, and again, these sorts of really big problems, there's no way to, to provide an adequate response in 10 minutes because it depends on each family. Each family is its own, has its own situation. But the other thing I would say is that if a person is feeling very depressed and having difficulty expressing emotion or affection toward a child, to make a plan, to write out some things that you can actually do, that you can do at certain times to, to reestablish or to make sure that the connection with your child is close. So if a person's feeling depressed, sometimes making an actual plan and then, then you know, Making sure that you do that plan is a, is a good thing to do. Carving out specific time to spend with the child, for example. Okay, well, the first part of the comment is that these sorts of problems of raising children by somebody who's traumatized, there's not a good response that I can give within 10 minutes or so because each family is unique. Um, and translate that, and then I'll give you the other part. Okay, and so, for example, if, um, but one thing that a person can do, if a person is de depressed and they are not feeling social or they're not feeling like they want to be around their children very much or something of this sort, sometimes it's good to make a written plan to yourself, not share it with the child, but maybe you and your wife or your husband, to make some sort of a written plan. So, for example, between this hour and this hour, I'm going to spend some time doing something with the child that the child likes, for example and kind of set up a plan so that you have a lot of interaction with the kid. Because the kids will realize that something's wrong, but they still respond to your affection and your love. And the important thing, if you don't feel that you can do that, is, is to create specific times, little bits of time that you can, that you can concentrate on the child, if, even if you're feeling very depressed. And get somebody to help you with this. So if you have a wife or a husband in particular, Talk with them and, say, and explain to them clearly that you're feeling these various sorts of problems and ask for their help so that you can stick to a schedule to spend some careful time with the child. And, and also, communication becomes even more important if you're feeling depressed or traumatized so that both parents are agreeing on certain aspects of raising the children. So I would communicate more with your wife or husband, and I would have them help you set up specific times to spend with the child. Okay, well, I apologize for not answering that the first time, and this is a very different question. So I think the first thing to do is to do everything possible to let the child feel secure. So, for example, we talk about talking with one's wife or other people about what happened in a very direct way, but with a child, 
you know, with a child, it's almost the opposite. You need to sort of explain them and show them or try to explain to them to minimize what happened and, and, and to create a, a secure environment for them. I'll let you translate that, and then I'll add more to it. Another thing that, for example, a mental health worker that's working with children might do is the mental health worker might let the child draw what they're scared of or what happened and then let the child talk about what happened and then reassure the child that they're safe. So, for example, if the parents were taken away, maybe the child draws this on a piece of paper and then the therapist or, or the person working with them might ask them how they feel about this and let them talk about it through using drawings or other sorts of ways because sometimes kids are not so verbal. And then they can talk about it and reassure them uh, let the child express what happened, and then and then the adult can help reassure them, if possible, that this won't happen again. Unfortunately, in the situation that you're in, that might not be the case. So if the child saw their parent taken away or beaten, you almost have to talk about it. You can't just ignore it. The child can't ignore it, and you can't ignore it. But what you have to do is reassure them that things are safe, and make sure also that they're connected with other adults who can reassure them that they're safe. So that there's a network so that they can bond not just with parents but with uncles and aunts and other adults so that they can feel a sense of security. And you don't want to describe too much how you felt when you were being beaten. You don't want to talk to them about your fear or what you went through as you might talk to your wife or a friend or somebody else like that. So you want to try to present as much strength as you can but it's also okay to talk with them and say, yes, this happened, yes, the police were bad, but I'm okay now, and, and, and then maybe give them some structured opportunities to talk about what happened, either when they're drawing or, or in some sort of situation, rather than just not talk about it at all. Another thing to say about this is that sometimes children who see some traumatic event, they may develop... Even a physical problem of, for example, uh, wetting the bed, urinating at night when they're in the bed. If this happens, it's really important not to shame them or to punish them for this. That's really important because this will recede as the child becomes less tra traumatized. The other thing is I'm going to try to find some resources. We may have already put some resources on child mental health in English. I'm going to try to find some and get them translated into Farsi and put them up for next week. And let me just say one thing that maybe will make you a little bit more hopeful about this. There was a study of children who stayed with their parents in London during World War II when London was being bombed, and those that were separated from their parents and sent to the country. Even the kids in London who stayed with their parents during the bombing, they did better even though they were traumatized. Kids are very resilient. So the most important thing is the relationship with their parent. So, so trauma often does not affect children long term. So even if the child is very uh, affected right now, remember that the relationship with the parent is the most important and that kids who sat through the bombing in London did better than the kids who were safe in the countryside but separated from their parents.